2: This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I am joined by one of our former hosts, Heath, Heath Brown, to talk about his new book, Homeschooling the Right, How Conservative Education Activism Erodes the State. This was published in 2020 by Columbia University Press, and is a really fascinating book about politics and homeschooling. Um, but I'm going to let Heath talk about that. First, I'd like to welcome Heath back to the New Books and Political Science podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project.
1: Hi, Heath. Yeah, I, I am so uh, excited uh, to come on and talk about the book. Uh, but, but even before the book, I'm so excited to be a part of this, uh, the, the network of, of the New Books Network and, and also so thrilled by what the this channel by what the new books and political science podcast is and has become and, and will be will become in the future. And you guys are doing such an amazing job, such an amazing job that I, I am nervous to do this episode because of the incredible high quality that you guys are producing at so. So um, thank you for having me on. I, I remain at the City University of New York affiliated both with John Jay College and also the CUNY Graduate Center. Um, my research, um, which, which some people view as, as varied and disparate, in fact, is always and ultimately connected back to two themes, which I'll be talking about today. Uh, one of the themes is the intersection between public policy and politics. And the second theme is the role of organizations in, in, uh, in how policies are made. And so I've talked about that in lots of different ways. And in this case, I'm talking about it um, in in the situation of homeschooling, a project that I started uh, back before homeschooling became a household uh, word phrase. Uh, When I started the project, most people that I talked to about the book would say, like, what are you talking about? I don't know what that is. Or maybe I once heard of somebody who was homeschooling their children. Um, That is not the case now. Uh, a year or more into the the pandemic, um, find a person who doesn't have uh, some close experience with homeschooling, and uh, and, and you'll be lucky because uh, it's just become such a uh, important part of the delivery of education uh, over the last year for not the best reasons, um, but it does does cast the book in a in a different light. So I'm I'm thrilled to talk more about the book.
2: And and what you're talking about is not necessarily what we were all sort of surprised to find ourselves doing um, last April when all the schools in the United States and around the world more or less shut down um, and sent children home to, to be homeschooled. You are talking about sort of a political movement um, that sort of started in the 70s but really picked up steam. Um, in the 1980s and 90s that is connected to the Reagan revolution and the religious right. Can you talk a bit about not the most recent experience that we've all had, but that sort of political dynamic?
1: Yeah, I th- I think that's exactly right. And uh, the book is, is focused very much on uh, the conservative wing of the homeschooling movement, uh, not the homeschooling movement overall, though many of the lessons can be generalized to that. Uh, but what I try to do, especially early in the book, is track this this movement to allow people to voluntarily opt out of uh, uh, typically public education, public schooling for their children, um, and that's something that is, uh, on the one hand, has long historic roots. But when we talk really about the homeschooling movement, we're really talking about a movement that started in the 1970s, really uh, uh, evolved in the 1980s, and became really a political player in the 1990s. And and all of this goes back to an effort of parents, initially parents of a variety of ideologies who were interested in, in educating their kids at home and there's lots of different reasons for it, but for uh, uh, conservative uh, homeschool families, especially conservative and also uh, religious homeschool families, uh, there was a clear motivation to uh, uh, move their kids out of some of the problems that they saw in public schools. Um, And and those ranged. Um, But what what initially started as a uh, relatively... Um, ideologically diverse movement, and we're talking now about the early 1980s, um, becomes a movement that's really dominated by ideological conservatives. And even though the numbers of homeschooled kids in the the country uh, to this day remains relatively low, the political influence of some of the most powerful organizations across the country, at the national, but also the state and local level, has really been outsized, and and that's in part because of how much synergy there is between what homeschooling advocates talk about and and other issue areas. Um, and we can talk about those, uh, but it's those overlaps that makes this this sometimes hidden political movement into something that has a has had major impacts. Uh, we we can talk about some of the details of that, but that's really what the book is about: is about this forty uh, odd year political history of this this policy that is the the right to homeschool your children uh, that that grows from just a handful of families to 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 more aided by organizations and 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 today remains um, influential and and important.
2: One of the points that I found really interesting as you develop the sort of thesis of the book and discuss it in the book is what you call sort of the parallel politics Um, and that essentially what's going on is that you have our norm normal or expected um, you know sort of debates around education, public education, funding, what's taught, the curriculum um, and that at the same time during this sort of rise of homeschooling, you have a parallel development of the same kind of infrastructure, um, or at least a, a similar kind of infrastructure. And I found that really interesting, because in part, I had never thought of it in that way, that it was an exact mimic, in a certain sense, of the policy sphere, the public policy sphere, but this is now kind of a private public policy sphere. Is that a accurate characterization? And can you explain a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, no, I think that's accurate. And I would love to quote you at some point, because I think you've done a great job of of summarizing what took me pages and pages and pages to try to explain. And and I think that's exactly right. And this is one of the the paradoxes here, uh, that when a family decides to take their children, let's say, out of a public school or a private school, really, um, we might expect for them to kind of drop out in part because they are opting out of what just about everybody else takes advantage of, participates in, which is the common, conventional, often neighborhood, public school. But when a family does that, uh, they face uh, a a lot of trouble, which is how do you educate kids at home? And and, uh, uh, all of us, including parents and non-parents now, can much more closely relate to this because Over the last year, many families have had to do this very thing. But imagine doing this voluntarily. Imagine doing this during a time before the Internet when you could pull up uh, Wikipedia and find out about any topic in the world. But think about the 1980s when uh, uh, we're talking about a pre-Internet time period uh, where parents would make this decision and then they were faced with the conundrum. So what do we teach? How do we teach math how do we teach language arts how do we teach history or biology or what have you and what naturally almost uh, i would argue inevitably grows up around these families is a rich civil society filled with dozens and dozens of organizations that are helping parents actually homeschool and they help to provide curriculum they help to provide links to textbooks they help to provide mentoring of these new, often untrained teachers in the home. And this is is a civil society grown out of really nothing, not much of anything. Um, But it doesn't remain a civil society focused just on curriculum and pedagogy. It quickly, and and some would say um, on purpose, develops into a political movement. So soon... By the mid-1980s and 1990s, there are politically oriented homeschool organizations operating in just about every state that provide a political voice for families that are educating at home. Because educating at home, even if it's made legal by the time of the late 1980s, early 1990s, doesn't make it easy. Doesn't mean that families don't face any challenges with local school boards or local administrators who are wondering what's going on in these homes and a very active and effective uh, set of lobbying organizations forms to provide a common defense. And that common defense is is essentially boils down to uh, leave us alone. Um, Give us the exemptions to all of the educational rules that are being introduced, everything from testing to accountability, to teacher standards, what have you and so uh what what starts as um a civil society that is formed really just around the act of educating becomes politically influential and so by the early 1990s there isn't a legislator uh, operating in any state government that would dare step foot into the world of homeschooling out of the fear of dozens and dozens of families being mobilized to arrive in the Capitol to oppose whatever they might be doing, even if what they were doing isn't going to directly affect homeschooling, even just the possibility. Some, and some would say like the unlikely possibility that a new re- educational regulation might touch on homeschoolers is rejected outright. And so this, this group becomes very influential and active and easily mobilized during the 1990s as a common defense for these families to educate at home. And so the book is, is very much about a, a grassroots movement that forms in defense of homeschooling first, but soon it starts to take on other, other objectives that aren't so closely connected to, the, to the, um, the practice of homeschooling. They become involved in other things over time.
2: And and you talk about how they sort of evolve into at least ideologically, the Tea Party kind of um, paradigm that we see that rises up in after the election of President Obama, um, and that also is galvanized to um, protest at state houses um, early on in a very grassroots form. Uh, can you thread the needle between? The, um, the homeschool movement and and your argument with regard to how that sort of connects to the Tea Party?
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. And because one of the arguments that the book makes is that um, many of the, the uh, beliefs and the policy agenda of the Tea Party movement of, of 2009 and 2010 can be seen in what homeschooling advocates have been advocating for for newly, nearly two, two decades prior to. And this isn't just the educational agenda of the Tea Party movement. It's, uh, it's a set of, of uh, anti-government, anti-institutional um, uh, beliefs, uh, ideologies, and, and policies connected with them that goes way back to the 1980s and some of the key um, uh, visionaries uh, that saw homeschooling as, as, a, as a revolution. And so some of the people uh, that emerged in the late 1970s and early 1980s is, is people like R.J. Rushdoony, who was this fire and brimstone religious intellectual who sees um, homeschooling as connected to a common defense of, of a fundamentalist Christian way of life, Uh, that he and others in his circle uh, envision for the country. And that homeschooling is is one way to reject the secularism uh, that is seen across public schools. Uh, Recall that this is a time period after prayer in school has been rejected. And homeschooling is seen as a way to reintroduce um, some of these Christian beliefs into the education of children and uh, Rush Dooney and others see this as an incredible opportunity. Um, one of the acolytes of RJ Rush Dooney is, is a, a gentleman named Gary North. Uh, Gary North um, takes up the cause. Gary North is an economist, not a religious scholar, but his, uh, his um, uh, writings are, are informed by his, his Christian beliefs. And um the New York Times writes um, at one point in a profile of Gary North uh, in 2011 that he's the, and I quote, the, the largely unknown, unknown to the broader public, but he's an influential figure on the American far right and on the curriculum of Christian homeschoolers across the country. Gary North became known, and this may be of a, um, a, a, a moniker that he developed for himself, but as the Tea Party Economist and he sort of branded himself in in this kind of way north writes about homeschooling and he writes about libertarianism he writes at one point and i quote um so let us be blunt about it we must use the doctrine of religious liberty to gain independence for christian schools until we train up a generation of people who know that there is no religious neutrality no neutral law no neutral education and no neutral civil government and by Christian schools, he means homeschools often, Christian homeschools. And so North sees, like Rush Dooney, not just a way to do education, but actually to prepare uh, a generation of students who are going to defend not just homeschooling, but a whole array of uh, of beliefs. And so North and and Rush Dooney feature in the very early history of homeschooling, but then uh, North, at least, comes back again and is prominent in the Tea Party. And we see this with lots of people who are involved in the Tea Party, that some of their early work um, and their political education comes from their involvement in running homeschool organizations. So they go from running a homeschool organization to getting involved in running a Tea Party organization. And um, there's lots of sort of examples of this. But I think the the, the central point that I try to make is that um, this this sort of conservative and libertarianism that plays out in the Tea Party, um, uh, and, and many have written about this uh, more eloquently than I have, um, doesn't just happen in 2009, 2010. I argue that the organizational dimension of it happens in part because many of these people had been practicing the organizing and mobilization at the grassroots level in their own homes uh, and with their neighbors in the in the name of homeschooling. And so without homeschooling, a lot of the practice of organizing uh, wouldn't have happened that was so integral to making the home uh, the tea party movement grow so quickly. And so I think there are very close connections uh, between these two movements.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: And one of the points that you sort of spend a lot of time writing about in, in terms of trying to distinguish things is that you're... Also, sort of charting the charter school movement Um, in your discussion of the homeschool movement because it's another sort of chunk of education reform that is also going on at this time. And so for listeners who um, might be curious, can you explain a little bit about the distinction between the charter school movement and the homeschool movement? Um, Because they do fall in somewhat different ideological camps, I believe.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. Um, From a distance, they both could be described as choice-based education. They both from a distance could be described as sort of quasi market-based approaches to education. When you see somebody like Donald Trump talk about education, and and he sure did not talk about education a lot when he was president, but when he did, he would often describe homeschooling, charter schooling, and school vouchers as as very in common, as a, as a set of policies that he didn't distinguish very much between. And, and I think um, many would sort of take away something similar, that they both sort of start from a similar premise that is critical of, of traditional public schools, that is, that is generally supportive of giving parents choice in some fashion. You would be led to believe then that they share a political history, when in fact they really don't, um, though they're happening at about the same time, um, homeschooling, the legalization of homeschooling precedes the adoption of charter school policies in, in, in nearly every case, so that by the end of the 1980s, homeschooling is legal and accepted in just about every state in the country, um, whereas charter school laws hadn't been passed. They, they wait until early 1990s. Uh, charter school laws play out over the 1990s and early into the 2000s. So they they arise at slightly different times. And they arise with a very different coalition of supporters. Uh, charter school laws and charter school advocacy really started as a um, uh, the business community and and local groups coming together, often in cities. Uh, whereas the homeschooling movement has been a much more rural and suburban movement, so where this is played out has also been been different. And um, as a result. When we see these two movements um, talk about issues, and in the book I study the, the, um, the, the rhetoric used by some of the most prominent charter school and homeschooling organizations, they use very different language and very different framing of, of the problems of ed- education. So, charter schools are uh, advocates are much more likely to talk about um, efficiency much more lo- likely to talk about the market, much more likely to talk about competition or the lack of competition or the lack of efficiency they see in public schools. Homeschool advocates talk very little about efficiency. They talk very little, little about competition. They talk mainly about uh, individual liberty. Uh, they talk mainly about uh, rights, often the religious rights and parental rights. Uh, charter school uh, advocates uh, don't talk about religious liberty. Uh, or religious rights very much at all. Neither group, neither advocates for homeschools or charter schools, talk about educational equity really at all. So one of the things they have in common is is neither movement supporting charter schools or homeschooling talks very much about educational equity as a as a prominent feature of of education policy. Advocates for public schools talk almost exclusively about educational equity um, uh, being important. And so this is one of the the ways that if we kind of look out across uh, educational reformers, um, the ways that they are similar and different. And in the book, I make the argument that this is matters for the politics of charter schools and the politics of of homeschools. Um, Homeschool policies at the state level almost never are uh, reversed. They never become less permissive. Uh, fewer, uh, the, the, the exemptions that are given to homeschool families are almost never taken away. Whereas in the world of charter school policy, they often are um, reversed. Uh, new, new restrictions are placed either on the number of charter schools or on restrictions on what it means to be a successful charter school. So we see a lot more pushback in the world of charter school politics than in homeschooling politics. And this, I argue in the book, is because of its design. Uh, there are losers uh, in the charter school politics world. Um, that is, money is taken away from uh, public schools when 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 uh, charter schools grow in numbers. Homeschools uh, get no money at all from from uh, public sources, and so uh, we don't see that same kind of zero sum game playing out uh, when when we talk about homeschooling. And as a result, there are few organized opponents to homeschooling as we see in charter schooling. So what, what from a distance look very similar, in fact, um, are very, um, similar, uh, very different when it comes down to it.
2: And one of the points that you make in the book, because you do sketch out the numbers associated with homeschooling is if we think about the sort of number of children who are in schools in the United States, the homeschool numbers are quite small in comparison. And yet, part of, I think, your argument is that this is kind of a quiet revolution that has happened while nobody's really paying attention. Um, And I would love for you to sort of make that argument um, because that was, you know, when you're reading through the book, it's kind of like, oh, hmm like this has all gone on and nobody's paid all that much attention
0: to it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But I can tell you who has paid attention to it. Every Republican who's been running for president over the last, let's say 25 years, has known that homeschool families are so well organized and so easily mobilized that nearly every Republican presidential candidate of the last 25 years has looked to homeschooling organizations for support, and it's not because uh, homeschooling parents make up twenty-five percent of the voting population. In even in the most in the even in the areas of the country where homeschooling is is the most prevalent, we're still not talking about more than ten percent of, of local uh, local uh, students, and and that's just a fraction of who's going to turn out and vote. It's not because uh, they they um, represent a large voting block. What they represent for many Republican candidates is a, is a group of families and potential volunteers on campaigns. So in, uh, in 2000, when Al Gore was facing, uh, uh George W. Bush, uh, there were organizers who recognized that they could turn the, the Bush campaign into a mini curriculum. And they did that. There's a, there, there, there's a, um, uh, a, a case in 2000 where uh, organizers created what they called uh, the, the, uh, George, uh, the homeschoolers for George Bush, which was a curriculum uh, played out in the fall of that year where families could could connect their 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 homeschool. That is what was going on in their education to the, the campaign so that if uh, if the, the, the children uh, went out and volunteered on a campaign, they'd get a certain number of points. Uh, If they uh, worked very hard to um, uh, uh, turn out voters, get uh, people registered, uh, they would score points. So to such a great extent that when George W. Bush ended up winning the election, he thanked these organizations, these homeschooling organizations for their help. He saw them as the foot soldiers in his election. Michelle Bachman, Mike Huckabee, uh, Ted Cruz, um, all look to Homeschooling organizations uh, and homeschool families—that is the co- the most conservative of them—as effective volunteers, uh, uh, integral to their get out the vote campaigns, and and uh, and and as a consequence, uh, a movement that has never been um, enormous in numbers has had this outside role to play in elections. Now again not all homeschoolers voted for Ted Cruz or Michelle Bachman or George W. Bush. And in the most recent elections, what we've seen is it's somewhere around 60% of parents of homeschool children uh, vote for the Republican candidate. So uh, that was the case um, uh, for John McCain, where he got about 60% of, of homeschool parents uh, supporting his campaign, about the same percentage voted for Mitt Romney, and about the same percentage voted for Donald Trump in uh, in 2016. Interestingly, in in 2020, I found that there was a small decrease in the amount of support among homeschoolers for Donald Trump. Small. A couple of percentage points. And one of the reasons for this, I think, is because what's happened to homeschooling over this time period is it's become uh, less ideological, Rather than more, and that's because m- the numbers are growing and it's become much more diverse. Uh, this was a, a a movement that for a long time uh, was largely white, was very suburban and rural, uh, but more recently it has become more diverse in terms of class, uh, in terms of race, uh, and I think in as a as a consequence in terms of ideology. and this is in part because in uh, 2020, unlike in 1985 or 1995, technology has made it much easier and the cost of homeschooling has gone down a lot. And so uh, the most this most recent election, I don't argue in the book uh, because the book was published after the outcome, but in subsequent uh, uh, data analysis, it has seemed that maybe there's a slight turn. Now, the most conservative homeschool families remain dedicated to Donald Trump what we see on the, uh, is, is the, the moderate, uh, homeschool parents turned away from Trump, uh, in 2020 in a way that they hadn't in, in, uh, 2016. And so that's, that's part of the, the argument of the book is that, um, these families as a result of, of, uh, leaving the public school system have to find a curriculum. And when it comes to election time, they find a curriculum in getting involved in elections and candidates for office, haven't been um haven't ignored this. In fact, they've embraced it uh because they recognize how valuable it can be to have families uh get out and and uh, uh get involved in helping them get elected.
2: So I mean again this sort of movement is sort of coming to differ, to maturity in a certain sense and and as you note know, there's a little bit more diversity and now we've all done it um over the past year of the pandemic. Um, although I know many people want to send their children back to face-to-face school, um, do you, what do you see as the legs um, for this movement going forward in terms of will it remain more captured by or <clears throat> based in the sort of religious right, um, or is there going to be possibly, again, more of an expansion?
1: yeah what, what what you see play out more recently over the last uh, five to ten years, and what I think I would anticipate in the future is um, is a moderation of of the politics and, and, and ideology uh, that is so um, has has been so dominant in the homeschooling movement. Um, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One of the reasons is that there are um, many more um, uh, purposefully secular homeschool organizations and, and they've been successful where, whereas in the past, they, they, um, really didn't exist at all. They, they have grown and, and they're now, I think, much more effective in, in advocating for a, a a very secular uh, vision for homeschooling. So that's part of it is, is the, the most prominent organizations now include, uh, much more kind of, um, um, moderate, um, secular organizations, were in the past, it was dominated by much more conservative organizations. At the same time, uh, the most prominent homeschooling organization um, has um, become much more focused just on homeschooling. So there's an organization called the Homeschool Legal Defense, uh, 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 what's the A? Association, maybe. Um, HSLDA. um And whereas in the 1990s and 2000s, they were a player in conservative politics, not just conservative education politics. Um, And that was because of their leadership. Uh, They have shifted their strategy over the last couple of years to be much more focused, more narrowly on homeschooling and haven't taken on a wider agenda uh, that, um, uh, has, has taken them in, into, in the past into other conservative issues. So they've, I, by narrowing their agenda, I think they're going to um, be much more focused. Uh, now, I think their defense of homeschooling remains as strong as ever, but it's much less connected to other social policies. I think the third reason for moderation is, is kind of the demographic one, uh, which is the people who homeschool I think are are much are are doing it for for different reasons, and some of those have have played out of the last year, which is, um, I think, for some families going to be hard to uh, to go back to, especially if they've made um, they've moved communities and their homeschooling now has taken them out of a community that they once were in, um, and so I think um, what what we see there is is a changing. So the the face of homeschooling has has changed over over this time period. Um, whether families go go back to their their you know they're back to their old in class public or private school or charter school um, remains to be seen. There's evidence so far that 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 hasn't happened universally, but uh, the you know the the reopening of schools is not universal. And so when that actually happens, I think we'll we'll, we'll know that better. But I think there are reasons to think in the future. That the homeschooling movement won't be nearly as charged by its uh, by its most conservative and right wing advocates, and there'll be many more uh, moderate and centrist advocates of homeschooling. Now, those moderate and centrist homeschooling advocates um, uh, may um, strengthen the movement, uh, may make it um, may have it grow in its numbers, but I think its political influence, especially in Republican um, presidential politics, May not be what we saw in in the past,
2: <clears throat> and um you you talk about this also in in the book in terms of um the political landscape that is now sort of um folding this in as you said, you know it, it became the foot soldiers in the w Bush campaign, but that this is now even though it has grown up as a sort of grassroots parallel policy s- sphere it's now part of the policy dialogue in part because of things like vouchers and charter schools so that the homeschool dialogue, I guess, is not as revolutionary as it was.
1: Yeah, there was a time period um, when um, the homeschooling movement rejected vouchers kind of outright. They rejected really any public financing, as a first step to regulation. And so you see peculiarly um, state legislators uh, sort of often supportive of homeschooling, uh, make recommendations to include homeschoolers in voucher plans or public financing, or to find ways for public funds to support uh, homeschooling expenses in some fashion. And in the past, homeschooling organizations basically rejected that outright. And they said, thank you, but no thank you. Because in their view, um, the money comes first and and the regulation comes second. Uh, And they've always been first and foremost opposed to any kind of uh, regulation of homeschooling. And that goes from um, what's taught to who is teaching it In, in many states to this day, uh, you don't need uh, to to have graduated from high school in order to be a homeschool teacher. You don't need an educational degree. Um, the, the the standards and, and testing are, are largely absent in in most state state rules. And and homeschooling advocates in the past have been quite content with this, and and also content with having no money come to homeschooling families. Now, over the last year there's really been a great change in that. And there have been numerous um, uh, uh, policies presented at the national level, but also at the state level to make the expenses of homeschooling uh, a tax write-off, to provide uh, for for greater public funding of the expenses of homeschooling. Um, And homeschooling organizations, I think, have increasingly become much more comfortable with that. And, and that's perhaps because of their moderation, um, their recognition that that money maybe is, is available. But it, it remains unclear whether those strings that they've always feared are, are coming next. Um, but for you know the last four years, homeschooling movement has had an advocate in Washington In the secretary of education, unlike an an advocate that they've ever had in the past, Republican or Democratic uh, administration, Uh, Betsy DeVos was a was a knowledgeable about homeschooling, um, had advocated for homeschooling policies prior to getting that position, uh, was seen as a as a as a friend of the movement, even though homeschooling advocates didn't back Donald Trump in large in, in vocally. In fact, some of the most prominent HSlda and and one of their former and most well known leaders wrote a uh, op-ed, very prominent op-ed in the Washington Post, where he said Donald Trump is not our candidate. Uh, we have supported Republican candidates in the past, and he is not somebody who we should support. Despite that, uh, the homeschooling community got that is the conservative homeschooling community got their person in in the Department of Education. And, and Michael Farris, who wrote that op-ed, uh, later, uh, showed up at, at, uh, all of the Supreme Court, uh, uh, swearing in ceremonies because, uh, the larger socially conservative, um, uh, agenda, uh, that he and others had been advocating for that, that homeschooling fit so naturally into, um, Donald Trump was seen, was seen as a success. So, um, the oddly, the the, the Trump years um, were were a huge success for homeschooling, um, but could lead to the 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 kinds of things that they had worried about for so long. And so you see them trying to walk that tightrope uh, over the last year of of wider acceptance and understanding um, and 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 empathy with with how difficult it is to homeschool. Um, but, but, but also then what comes from, uh, that, that, uh, that that salience and it could be more regulations. It could be more standardization. It could be some of the things that they have been so fearful uh, of in the past. And that would pull homeschooling much more into the, the mainstream, possibly making it more standardized, making the outcomes much more widely known in the past. We we've known very little about homeschooling uh we've known we've known very little about um you know uh reading proficiency math proficiency all the things that we know so well about public schools when it's come to homeschooling we've known very little it could be in the future we'll know much more
2: and the dynamic around this whole movement was also one that was state and local based um which is again kind of novel on some on some levels but not really um in terms of its grassroots movement, so this isn't necessary. It became a national movement, but it really operated along the lines of advocating for legal changes in the states. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's you know there they're in 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 most ways there is no federal there has been no federal homeschooling policy as such. Uh, what federal homeschooling policy is basically? meant in in practice is don't talk about homeschooling um don't include homeschooling in in when you're introducing and making federal policy and and everyone's you know has been kind of okay with that uh and, and that's in part because they they haven't asked for very much in return most of the real action has played out at the state level and so state uh, uh state homeschooling policy is really what allows, Families to to opt out of of formal uh, schooling, formal schooling that takes the form of either a public school or a private school or a charter school, um, that's either written into formally written into state law or written in into some sort of uh, indirect way, so that to homeschool basically means to operate a home based private school. But whether it's sort of formal homeschooling or de facto homeschooling. The real legislative action has always been at the state level, um, and and local officials have kind of actually had had little to do in many cases with homeschooling because um, in many cases homeschoolers had had little to do with public schools. Only very recently have uh, local uh, local jurisdictions come to connect better with homeschooling. And that's in part because of declining enrollment in many parts of the country. So whereas in the past, uh, a a student who was educated at home wouldn't be allowed to take a class at a local high school, let's say. Let's say they wanted to take a class. The family was unable to teach Russian, Mandarin, uh, 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 astronomy. They they in the past were just about always forbidden from taking that class, the individual class at a, at a local public high school. Increasingly, that's possible. In the past, uh, uh, a student athlete would almost never be able to compete for a local team, nor would their team, their homeschool team, be able to compete against uh, uh, public or private schools increasingly laws have been passed to make that possible. And so what we've seen over the last, let's say 10 years, is homeschools have become uh, more closely connected with local public schools and and other local institutions. Libraries are really the most prominent. Um, Libraries have come to embrace uh, homeschool families, often dedicating large sections of of, uh, a collection and rooms and space and invitations to homeschool families to use libraries, use public libraries, um, that that um, represents a change in how homeschool families have been integrated in local communities. Once uh, cut off from many local institutions, really operating in this kind of parallel way, um, those lines have have uh, have crossed uh, more recently, and it's in part because localities and states have. Have seen um, uh, the the need to connect these families much more to to public schools,
2: and I mean I know I've read and I've seen articles about the questions of student athletes um, or AP classes, um, particularly as an option that homeschool families or organizations are wanting access to for the for the students. Um, it's a, it's a really interesting area because, as we talked about at the beginning, it sort of has been going on, but a little bit under the radar to a degree. And, of course, the, the public school is a center of a community. Um, and so, you know, taking a, a percentage of the people out of the public school and moving them into the private sphere is another challenge for democracy. Um, and so how does this movement operate in that context?
1: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And, you know, and my, my hope with the book is that it's, it's, um, it's read not just by those interested in education politics and education policy, because I think, I, I think the argument that I make is, is, is true for the homeschooling movement in a way that it is, um, um, for, for other things like gated communities, uh, gated communities um, that are um, not always established by policy, but public policy decisions have been made uh, on zoning and, and construction of, of public services to, to make them much easier in some parts of the country. And very, si- very similar things happen. If you live in a, in a gated community, either with formal gates or, or with some other you know, virtual gates, um, there's often a, a, a quasi bill of rights uh, that establishes the, the rules and procedures about everything that your local town council would have, would have been um, solely in charge of in the past. Um, democracy of a sort plays out uh, within um, these communities that have um, uh, been exempted or opted out of. Uh, what others have, have uh, remained a part of, uh, it's true for homeschooling families that, that no longer are a part of a PTA, uh, that no longer as, are as involved in, in local school board politics. Uh, when families who decide to homeschool um, make those decisions, it, it's analogous to other kinds of uh, politics of opting out. Um, Everything from occupational licensure and what it means when states allow certain occupations to um, opt out of the licensure procedures, uh, that has an effect on the politics and regulation of those professions. Um, Everything from individual retirement accounts to vaccination uh, to vouchers for housing and education all share a common design which is allowing people to opt out or gain exemptions from the rules that others play by. And there are consequences for democracy of that. Um, But they're not the obvious consequence that I think a lot of people expected for homeschooling, which is once people opt out, they drop out. In fact, the opposite has happened in the case of homeschooling. People have opted out but they haven't become less politically involved; they've become more politically involved. the The act of opting out has empowered families to feel uh, like their political voice and their 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 political role um, is is heightened. And 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 I think this is a um, sort of a paradox and irony uh, that that we need to think about when we give other kinds of exemptions, uh, exemptions that we would think mean that people will then kind of leave everything else alone is really not the case that these opt-out movements create powerful constituencies that will um be involved not just in the narrow politics of that given policy but will bleed over into other issues and and I think that's one of the the the, the parts of this book that that I uh and uh, that I hope to engage people with is is this idea of of opting out and um, opting out of the COVID vaccine and the consequence for political organizing seems like something that is that matters. That this is the opting out of this this vaccination has obvious public health ramifications, but it also has political ramifications as well. and And trying to understand those in real time is is very hard. I would argue that that we don't have to understand it just in real time. We can also look to analogous political movements that have played out that we can draw some lessons from, and, and the homeschooling movement, I think, is one of them.
2: So, <clears throat> given that, what is it that you're working on now, Heath?
1: What am I working on now? I am, I am uh, working on a, a little bit trying to follow up on, on this project, um, but uh, there are a number of other things, including something unrelated to my research, uh, that is related much more to uh, trying to right some wrongs in the world of book publishing that I can't yet reveal the details of, um, but they will be revealed soon to the world. And, and, uh, and I think it's, it's a very exciting project that I, that I hope to connect with the world. And I would love, uh, come this fall, to come back on without a book to promote, um, but with a book related project to talk about and, and would love to come back and, and talk to you guys uh, about the project and about um, uh, how we hope it leads to uh, more books, better books, um, uh, books from a wider diversity of institutions. And, and uh, uh, maybe I'll leave it there, but but I really do hope to come back to talk about that project soon.
2: I am very intrigued and I'm happy to invite you back to the New Books Network to talk about that. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you for joining me today, Heath Brown, to talk about Homeschooling the Right, How Conservative Education Activism Erodes the State, published by Columbia University Press. I assume one can purchase this at Columbia University Press's website. Um, any brick and mortar stores with a cool online presence you want to give a shout out to?
1: Uh, not that come to mind, but I do want to give a shout out to my editor, uh, uh, Stephen Wesley, Um who who did did the the functional the functional parts of of editing a book, but so much more. And, and the, the, the consequence for me was a book that I, I truly, truly am proud of, not just the findings, but but of the, the writing. And, and, and that wasn't done alone. And, and Stephen's work on this was so great um, that if you have a book manuscript, you should pitch it to Stephen because he will make the book better and more readable. And I can't think of anything that that any of us want more than having people read the book and enjoy them. So um, I want to share that that uh, the the credit for the the final version of this book with with Columbia, all their editors, but specifically with uh, Stephen Wesley.
2: And I will concur that this is a very nicely written book, and is easy to read and lovely to read. So I appreciate the opportunity to read it, and thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you.